And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Fred Hochberg has a great story, and there are a lot of chapters to it. As an entrepreneur, as head of the Small Business Administration, as chairman of the Export-Import Bank, as a Democratic activist, and as one of the country's leading advocates for gay and lesbian rights. Fred Hochberg is currently a fellow at the Institute of Politics, and we sat down to talk about his life and career and the issues on which he's played such a big role. Fred Hochberg, it's great to see you. Uh, I want to thank you on the front end, as I will on the back, for being a fellow at the Institute of Politics this this fall. You've been a great asset to uh, to us here and to these students, and good to see you uh, here. I, you know, the great uh, benefit of doing this podcast is I learn about people who I thought I knew, and the thing, I, I vaguely knew the story of your family, but... Um, it's really an an impressive story, and your mom's story is an impressive story. But tell me about your your family. Well, um, my mom was born in uh, Leipzig in Germany in 1927, and uh, she had an older brother named Siegfried, uh, whom I named. Uh, I thank my parents every day. They did not name me Siegfried, but just Fred, mm-hmm. um, which throws people. It's not Frederick. It's not Alvin. It's just Fred. Uh, and in 1933, um, they, my mother's brother, who was a few years older, she was like nine, kind of got roughed up by some Nazi Hitler youth and pushed down a flight of stairs. And I think that was the last straw for my grandfather. And um, <clears throat> he said, we have to get out. So they, they went and they moved to Holland. They probably wouldn't have survived. They probably wouldn't have survived. What's What's remarkable is... One-third of the German Jews left Germany. So if you think about it, if you're living in the community and one out of three friends is leaving, this is not like a... You should be asking the question, what do they know that I don't know? Right. So so it was a sizable portion got out in advance. They went to Holland, they went to Amsterdam, and they figured that bought them time. And they looked at... uh, They went took a trip to Palestine... My grandfather came to Havana, uh, and actually, it was when President Obama opened up in Cuba that reminded my mother, she says, you know, your grandfather went to Havana, I remember that now, and she had forgotten, and then New York, and then decided on New York. Uh So, I could have been a Cuban-American for all I know, it was almost. Yeah. Um, That was... Later in the decade? It was 1937. Yeah. So, actually, my grandfather was already in America. And my grandmother went to get her visa extended. And the consular office said, we're not extending visas, but you still have a week. You should get on a boat because if you get on the boat, they'll let you get off the boat. Uh-huh. And they got on a boat. They packed up within a few days or a week. My mother, my, her brother and my grandmother and some fur- a few bits, some furniture and sailed to America. Yeah. I, what I was going to say was, as you point out, it got harder and harder and – People were turned away. Obviously, the St. Louis is a historic and tragic uh, story of uh, Jews being turned away right. and sent back to uh, sent back to Europe. 
my grandfather clearly was a smart man that he had the foresight to get out. And he had some enough cash to get out. So tell me about your your mom, uh, because she was really a pioneer uh, in business. You know, she so she got here in 37, she went to um, uh, Hunter High School, went to NYU, um, and uh, she got married at the age of 22. So in, in those days, she got, quote unquote, her MRS. She got married. She, didn't, she never finished college. And um, she always said, well, I wanted to have a little extra money. My dad had a dry goods store, and she wanted a little extra cash. So her father... Uh, manufactured uh, pocketbooks, belts, wallets, small leather goods. And my mom would actually go to the better stores in New York, and she had a good eye, and she would buy them. And they would, uh, the crass word is knock them off. Uh, the polite word is, I said, they tastefully reinterpreted them for their market. <laughs> <laughs> and she, so they would... Was, was that on advice of counsel? On advice of counsel, yes. They tastefully reinterpreted them. <laughs> so she'd go to Lord and Taylor and places like that, uh-huh. you know, and... And and so he made these leather goods, and she was sort of the designer. And then she got the idea of selling them in Seventeen magazine. And she put an ad in the magazine, put took two thousand dollars of their wedding money, which was a lot of money in nineteen fifty one. Yeah, and bet it all. And um, that ad was probably the best ad the company ever ran in sixty years. You still have that ad? Is still that have a, co- your I have a copy of the oh. of the Seventeen magazine. I have the ad. Um, and uh, that launched the business. Because the Lillian Vernon line became a catalog right. uh, and quite a business. So it actually started as, it was called Vernon Specialties. And then it turns out, not surprisingly, David, there was a plumbing supply company with the same name in Mount Vernon. So it became Lillian Vernon Specialties. And that was like a mouthful. So they just dropped the specialties and became Lillian Vernon. And how did the business grow? So it started with just ads in, in Ladies Home Journal, Red Book, Cos- you know, teen magazines, um, like things like that. And then in the very late fifties, uh, came out. With so like the ad, they would have the ads, and people would mail in there. And in those days, they mailed in cash. And my job was to take the singles and put them in packs of fifty, take the quarters, nickels, and dimes, and roll them in. You know, roll them. And I would go to the bank with my mom. And we didn't have an adding machine, and I would sit on the bank t- manager's desk, and I would actually add up the checks. <laughs> so we had a deposit slip, and how many people sent. Sounds checks. like it's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life. So yeah. it was. It was. It was. You know, it, it had very simple beginnings. You know, and I don't think had the great ambition that developed over time. And she, my mom and dad got divorced in seventy sixty nine. So I think she then sort of more fully devoted herself to the business, and then I. You joined it. And I joined the business in 75. Was it always your intent to do that? Was that your... Pretty much so. Your ambition? You know, and just as an early day, in in those days, color printing was really expensive. So we would take one page in the catalog, would be all the copy, and the color would be only photographs on the following page, because that way you had waste color by having copy on it. So, you know, but that was a different era of printing and production and everything else. Now, she says that your... your joining the business was a kind of a watershed event in terms of growing the business. What did you do with that business that turned it into? It started off as a, a successful business, but uh, I think when you, I read somewhere when you uh, 
came, it was a $5 million business, is that right? right. And it grew to a $200 right. million dollar a year business. She had the creative spark. She she had, a, you know, her, her book is called An Eye for Winner. She had a great eye for spotting products and trends early on. Um, one of the keys in the business was uh, we did a lot of things monogram. We put your name on anything and anything and everything you can imagine. Um, so I think when I came, I came out of business school, and I was the only person with a college degree at the company. And we, you know, I felt it was like a high school student who had never exercised. But this, there was the raw material was there, but we hadn't really analyzed the data. We didn't really expand it out. And I think when I got there, took a from 51 to 75 to get to $5 million, I think we thought, well, God, if we double the business to $10 million, that'll be a lot. And I applied, listen, a lot of things. You, you had gotten an MBA at Columbia. At Columbia. So, yeah. so I applied, you know, some marketing, polling, market research, some financial models, stuff I learned in business school. And um, we were able to figure out what what we actually did in a, in a minute is we would calculate sales per square inch in the catalog, the way a store set, calculates sales per, per square foot. And we started products that so, sold a lot. We put more of those in. Sold that didn't per square inch, we put less in, and we started really managing the enterprise. And it, I got there in 75. By 86, we were well over $100 million. It is... Uh uh, F- uh, Forbes described it as one of the great success stories of American entrepreneurship. You went public in 1987, first time a a, a, a company founded by a woman uh, went went public. Uh, so that's that's quite a, a legacy. Heady. Yeah, it was very heady. She she really wanted. I think she wanted that acknowledgement. You know, I remember once <clears throat> UJA wanted to honor her as like you know. Leading United, United Jewish Appeal. United Jewish Appeal, sorry. Leading businesswoman. She goes, no, I can be a business person. I'm not going to be the woman business person. Yeah. You know, acknowledge me. She's ahead of her time. She was way it? ahead of her time. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we had more. We had so many women executives. I used to say, I said, there's not enough men in this company. Now, you, uh, but you guys had some sort of falling out, right? You, you over succession. Yes. Like, she didn't want to leave the business. She didn't want to leave the business. What happened was, I turned the. Uh, it was partly the tyranny of, of the of the calendar. I turned forty the year she turned sixty five, and I had a lot of people saying, "Okay, you know, you're president. You're gonna when are you gonna really run this place? You're gonna be the CEO and take over." So I'm getting I'm like revving, and people are saying to her, "You're gonna retire. You're sixty five now." And she's like digging. She's she's revving in the other direction. I almost think there are times I wonder if 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 our if our birthdays did not coincide in the same year, maybe that w- we would have been a little more relaxed about it. But um, it, yeah, it came to a head. I turned um, forty in ninety uh, <clears> two, <throat> and I I left a year later. And was it was that, was, it, was it a painful thing? Oh, we didn't talk for about a year, a year and a half. That's tough. That was we. I mean, we it's not exactly teach. an advertisement for going into business with your family. It's a challenge to go into family businesses are a challenge. I've talked to other people about. It. I mean, it 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 because one day in the same in the same twenty minutes, you're a business partner, you're in a subordinate, and it's your mother <laughs> or father, and that's a lot of different roles to try and keep meshing together. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe we could have found somebody who would have been a. There are a number of consultants now who do this kind of work, work with family businesses. Somehow we didn't deploy that. But 
I don't, re- you know, I let have- me say, and I think I can, I have leave to say it. The dynamics of a Jewish family <laughs> <laughs> has its own complications. Has its own complications. Yeah. And you know, to be honest with you, being openly gay, I'm sure added another whole dimension to that. Yeah. Well, let me ask you about that. Um, talk to me about you. You you came of age in a generation. We're in an entirely different time now, and good that we are. Right. But how how was it for you as a kid in claiming your own identity? It was very tr- tricky then. I sort of I came out. I called it sort of the. PSPA, post-Stonewall pre-AIDS, uh-huh. <laughs> in the 70s. And, um, you know, you start, Barney Frank used to say you sort of come out retail. First, you start coming out to yourself and, and figuring out what's going on here. Uh, and I actually, as it became more clear to me, I actually decided to go to therapy, and I, I was on the couch for 20-plus years um, to try and just come to terms with it, which would be very different today. Yeah, it was a much more hostile. When you say come to yeah, come to terms with it, tell me about that. Well, I mean, I remember first I got to the therapist. I never will forget. I get there and after the first session, she says, "Maybe you want to lie down on the couch." <laughs> I was that anxious, and you know, it took me within six months. I'm talking about being homo- homosexual, not gay. Homo- mm-hmm. And I, I really said. So should we, like, do shock treatment? I mean, what do we do? You know, I, Because you thought that was somehow... That was, yeah. So it was, it was a very, you know, it was, it was a very inhospitable time. And did you, and did you talk to your parents about this? Uh, not for, no. I didn't talk to my... So when I came out to my mother, I, I, had a, I met somebody and we were living together. And in those days, it was pre-cell phone. He had his own phone and I had, a, we had two phones in the apartment and... Somehow. Just to keep up a, a fiction a for fiction. those who yeah. you so didn't she, want to. Right. So so I remember she found, somehow got his name, calls the phone, no, doesn't say anything. He picks up, hangs up. One minute later, my phone rings. Hi, sweetheart. Are you home? Are you home alone? Anybody? <laughs> really? <laughs> so I ultimately came out to her because I said, all right, you know, I'm living with a guy and I, this is so... In those days, I started the conversation saying that I was bisexual. I figured that was a way of easing into the subject, um, uh, which I wasn't. But I, I mean, mm-hmm. I had sex with him. But I, I, I figured that, was that a, make it easier, a little for her easier for her to come accommodate to it. Um, but she had a really rough time. She had a rough. I mean, she she talked about self, she was going to exile herself to Europe and move back to Europe. Really? And, yeah. You know, I'm going to move to Switzerland. I don't think I can tell with this. That's that's painful. Yeah, it was pretty intense, and we were working together. Yeah. So um, it had a it had a lot of drama in it in that regard, you know. And you can't tell them suppliers or what, what a company people in the company say or people do business with. So it took a lot of. I, I'm very fortunate. I found a good therapist and, and worked through a lot of that stuff. Yeah. You you feel it would be much different today? Oh, it was totally different. First of all, my generation, everybody of my generation has a coming out story. You know, there's some passage that you've come out to your family, to your friends. Today, a lot of kids don't come out. They just, they're out. There's, it's, not, it's not something they have to, it's not a migration. So, and it's and also, and, and it's younger. And, the, the, and there's acceptance. Yeah. Much more acceptance, much more, it's much more every day. 
Um, you know, I've met a number of students here who are fellows who talked about it. And I remember when I was at the Small Business Administration jumping ahead, you know, I'd have parents come and talk to me because it's, all right, all right, my boss is gay. Maybe you can help me. How do I talk to my son or daughter? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, we as a country have made enormous strides. You know, um, uh, I had a conversation uh, like this with Barney Frank uh, last year, and he described his own very difficult journey and how painful it was to have to kind of hide who he was and how lonely it was uh, for him. And it was it was very poignant. Um, you know, as he described going to fundraisers and people would come as couples and he'd go home alone. Right. Uh, so, uh, now did and you... Carly Barney did come up with the concept of don't ask, don't tell, because that was Barney's life. Mm-hmm. In other words, that the, a lot of that policy that happened on Clinton, because Barney was influential, this is also partly, you know, that's how Barney navigated the world. Yeah. You were part of the Clinton administration. Um, what was your thought when the don't ask, don't tell policy about the military was developed? Well, I actually was the finance chair of something called the Campaign for Military Service, which was a sort of a coalition of different uh, civil rights organizations that was working to build support for what we thought President Clinton wanted to do in terms of integrating the military. So I left Lillian Vernon. And literally within 10 days, I moved myself to Washington, and I worked here for six, in Washington for six months as the finance chair working in finance and strategy with Tom Stoddard and a number of other people on that. And we thought— And that was, that was Clinton's intention to integrate uh, uh, gays into the military. Totally. But uh, ran into a political buzzsaw and then kind of retreated to the don't ask, don't Sam Nunn was no help. Yeah, who was chairman of the Armed Services And he got passed over for Secretary of Defense, so whether he had his own personal peak with the president about it, but he certainly made it difficult. And what was your reaction when that became the policy? Well, it was an enormous disappointment. I mean, we all, you know, we raised something like $10 million, which was a lot of money in the 90s to yeah. try to raise for— I remember when that used to be a lot of money in politics. Yes, exactly. That was a lot of money in those days. Yeah. And so it was—I remember listening to the speech— and Bill Clinton was genius at this. You know, we're listening. And as we're listening, we think, I think he's going in our direction. You know, he, w- he was so smart at honoring both sides. Yes, Solomonic. Totally. So we're yeah. sitting there. And then at the end, we say, all right, we got the rhetoric. They got the policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it took another 17 years, and President Obama did it. But it took 17 more years to get there. Yeah, I was in the room when, and you were too, I'm sure, when— uh, the president, President Obama, signed the policy Amazing. repealing that. That was one of the most moving. Think, I have a chill. Just that was one of the it. most moving days. And you know what was the most moving thing about it was the ovation that Admiral Mullen got, uh, who was chairman right. of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who started off not necessarily that comfortable with the change in policy, and ended up being one of its great right. champions. Um, I remember the initial meetings in the administration when the president said, I'm not – he Mullen, uh, uh, Secretary of Defense Gates, uh, there were some others there, um, uh, uh, General Cartwright, who was the vice chair of the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the president said, I, I didn't ask you here 
to to discuss this. I asked you here to tell you that I want to change this policy. We're going to change this policy, but I want to do it in a way that's not disruptive, and I want your cooperation. And it was really a process. And as you know, he was he came under a lot of uh, fire from the from the community for not uh, doing it fast enough. Sure. Uh, but he wanted to do it legislatively. Yep. And that was the right way to go. Totally. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing now the problem with executive orders. They they have a kind of a short life. Right. Right. Um, so t- tell me, you, you started off reluctantly, and then you uh, and then you really became an activist in the community. So that was quite a transition. Yeah, the way I understand that, David, is I think. I don't want you I don't want to be a victim. And one thing about building your own self sense of self and self self esteem is to actively do something about it. So I think I got involved in the late seventies uh on LGBT issues. I think they were just called gay issues then. then yes, yeah. <laughs> um with Lambda Legal Defense and others. And to me I think it was a healing process. I think a way of healing that pain is to do something about it. And to work on it, and that actually made it. I was actively fixing something versus just feeling bad, and so it was as much a personal journey as it was a political journey. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Fred Hochberg. As you point out, we've made tremendous progress in this country on this issue. The uh, uh, obviously. Uh, the marriage issue was a huge, huge, huge step forward, um, but we still have these uh, these issues still linger with us. Uh, President Trump has now uh, rolled back uh, the rights of transgender Americans to to serve. This is now a matter of legal uh, contention. Um, so these these battles still go on. The battles still go on, and the progress is fragile. It's it's very fragile, and I think the transgender issue has just has been harder. In many ways, there's some aspects of it that are better and easier because some of the best advocates on transgender issue are mothers and fathers who have children who are trans. And I saw one at the human rights campaign dinner just last weekend. It was so moving. A nine year old son. Um, but for many parts of society, you know, we're very binary, and so it, it, it's confusing to people. I, there's a story I never will forget with Ted Kennedy. I was with Ted Kennedy in 2004 during the Kerry campaign, mm-hmm. and he was doing a press conference on hate crimes, and he asked me to come, and so I came, and at the end of it, he leans over and he says, Fred, I don't know what to do with these trisexuals. I just don't know. I said, Senator... They're transgender. They're not trisexuals. <laughs> and, you know, here was one of the greatest advocates for LGBT issues the Senate had ever seen. And he you know, he was trying to, one, I think emotionally square it and also politically. Because I remember him saying, you know, I got all these senators to agree on gay and lesbian. I have to now go back and get them all to rethink and add another dimension to be co-sponsors of a employment bill. So... You know, he and that, now granted that's over a decade ago, but I, so I think that it's it's been it's been harder, and society's made I think made remarkable progress on the transgender issue in very short time. I mean, that comment with Ted Kennedy was thirteen, fourteen years right. ago. You know, uh, 
one mark of the progress that we've made generally on these issues is the fact that your appointment to run the SBA was a matter of some controversy uh, back in the 90s in the Clinton administration. Talk about that. Well, so I uh, <clears throat> I had worked on President Clinton's first campaign, uh, worked on his, um, and then worked again in 96. And um, it was the day after Election Day, and he had, a he had a receiving line at the Building Museum in Washington and said, and I just, you know, he's getting well wishes. And I remember I walked up to him and shook his head, and I said, congratulations. And I knew him at that point, having worked on 92 and things in between. And I, I don't think I rehearsed it. I simply said, Mr. President, I, I want to come work for you. And he turned around. He said, well, call Nancy Hernreich tomorrow. So she gave me her business card, and I go, what you do when the president says call someone in the morning? You call them in the morning. Yes. So um, uh, there were a couple of jobs open, and uh, ultimately the SBA seemed like the Right well, it makes you 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 were a star entrepreneur and a small businessman. Right. Actually, I, I really understood those the people we were serving, but that nomination ran into a buzzsaw. It took over seven months. Um, it was in part held up. I got direct confirmation of it being gay. You know, it was like, oh well, clearly this is one more quota filling, incompetent, unqualified person that President Clinton is sending to the Senate. And we're going to just stonewall them. Yeah, and there were there were other appointments. Yes, Roberta Axenberg had a tr challenging time. Jim Hormel had to get a recess appointment. Uh, it was very different than you know when President Obama came through, and that was not an issue in the confirmations. Yeah, so that's really a measure of uh, the progress we made. Talk to me about your tenure at the SBA. You know, up, up until working for President Obama, that was the greatest job I ever had. It was a great job. I was there for the second half of the Clinton administration. I'm always proud of the fact we almost quadrupled loans to women and minorities. And at the time, we didn't even double them in total. Um, so we did it. And we speeded up service times. We automated many parts of the agency. Um, and I really got to learn about a lot of businesses. And most importantly, I learned how to work in government. You know, I, I always thank President Clinton for having given, having the confidence that gave me my first job in government. Because, you know, it's very different, the private sector to the public sector. And some people have a rougher the transition. The president's learning that, right? Yes, now. he's learning that. In the other. <laughs> yeah. well, uh, well, talk to me about small businesses in our economy. Uh, and what the challenges are. I mean, there is a concern about small business uh, uh, creation today and the pace at which businesses are being created. Some, some, you know, you, if there were uh, if, if there were Republican here, they would say, "Well, this is the result of burdensome regulation." Um, there, you know, but but what do you say about all of this? Well, we are in a period where small business formation is at a low point, and it's not clear. You know, it's hard to determine exactly why. How much of that has to do with, you know, access to capital, mm -hmm. which is what the SBA really provides, is access to capital, provides a guarantee to induce a bank to make a loan. So, so there is that. I mean, there are a lot of, there are a lot of sort of, um, whether it be a person having a two-person or one-person computer tech company that does, you know, programs your, your laptop at home. So there are a lot of those kind of businesses. A lot of them are one-person businesses. We're also in a gig economy where that may also be overshadowing some of the aspects of it. Does it worry you? 
Oh, sure, it worries me because a lot of innovation comes from small businesses. And we still in our head have that as part of the American dream that you're going to start a business and build a business and give it to your kids. Right. You know, uh, one of the things that uh, strikes me is that we, we see a lot of consolidation going on in businesses, in business. The Internet has created an, an opportunity for um, large-scale enterprises to overwhelm smaller businesses. But it's also given an opportunity, you know, uh, we dealt with a number of small food companies, you know, at, at Exim Bank that – there's a barbecue sauce company or a small winery that actually can go online, have a web presence, ship anywhere in the world, uh, and either access, if they need to, SBA or XM financing if needed. So in many ways, that's true, but it's also opened it up and made that much more possible. Mm-hmm. So there's an alternative to just saying, well, I, I have this great barbecue sauce and I've got to find supermarkets to sell and I can sell direct. Yeah. The other side of the equation is the, the Amazon right. phenomenon where you can order almost anything from Amazon and, and the small retailers uh, are facing enormous pressure. You know, I mean, walking around Hyde Park, you just see there's still more and more empty storefronts because yeah. it's harder and harder to make that work in yeah. this economy. I wonder whether there's going to be some pushback against all of this consolidation. I mean, you can't stop technology, and there is a certain ease to sitting at your your kitchen table and ordering stuff and having it show up at your doorstep. On the other hand, you know, it's tough on communities. It's tough on communities. It's tough on community. Tough on the tax base of communities because, you know, com- I mean, what we're going to be seeing with a number of shopping malls that are going to be vacant. Uh, because once they start to, you know, once a certain percentage become vacant, then nobody wants to walk into a mall where a third of the stores are empty. Yeah. And what's going to happen to that? What's how we're going to repurpose that real estate, and what that's going to do to the tax base for a lot of communities that rely on real estate taxes? I don't think we've figured all that out yet. You took a break in between uh, your public service at the New School. Uh, the Milano School of International Affairs Management and Urban Policy, um, doing somewhat the same sort of things we're doing here at the the Institute of Politics. But you came back to public service under the Obama administration as head of what is, it turns out, a pretty controversial agency, the Export-Import Bank. I think a lot of people don't know what the Export-Import Bank is. So, uh Sure. So, well, that. one reason I took a pause at, the, at at Milano was we had a Republican in the White House. I would have much preferred to work in Washington, but that wasn't an option. Yeah. So, um, yeah, your students benefited from your they, hiatus. They I met with the Harris students today and talked about it a little bit. So, what the Export Import Bank does, very briefly, was actually started by FDR. Um, and interestingly, the very first transaction ever done was actually selling currency to Cuba. The uh, Exim Bank took U.S. American silver and minted it into coins in Philadelphia, and we, sent, we sold them their first currency, or one, not maybe on first, one of the early currencies. So what the Exim Bank does, it, it exists for one purpose only, supporting U.S. jobs. So if you're a small business, like, there's a company here, um, um, Darley, that makes fire trucks. They have a, so some of it here in Illinois, and the rest, I think, is in Wisconsin. Um, yeah, in Wisconsin. So um, 
They sell fire trucks to places like Lagos in Nigeria, uh, to China, and they have to compete with German companies, Dutch companies, and Chinese companies. And um, each of those competitors come with financing when they're selling their equip- firefighting equipment in those countries. So, yeah, In other words, <clears throat> excuse me, financing for the people who, want, who the are buyers. buying the, yes. their equipment. Exactly. You know, it's a little bit like here we're at the University of Chicago. I mean, no one applies to college and after they get in said, oh, now how am I going to pay $300,000 for the next four years? You, you have to think about it in advance. So if, you, if, if a community or a country is buying firefighting equipment or jet airplanes or whatever, the financing is integral to the sales proposition. So we would provide, <clears throat> for a fee, a guaranteed loan so that J.P. Morgan Chase, Citibank, HSBC, any of the, any bank, doesn't mean the U.S. bank, would make a loan to the municipality of Lagos. We would guarantee it for a fee. And <clears throat> excuse me, with that fee, that was enough to give comfort to a financial institution to make the loan because they're – there are concerns about credit worthiness, but frankly, with a full faith and credit backing of the U.S. government, the bank will make the loan, and the buyers don't like the default on the U.S. government. I always say it's a, it's not a good idea to default on Uncle Sam. But um, so basically, you, you're providing financing for people for people overseas, uh, and. That has come under attack from uh, a, for a variety of right. reasons. And so that's one. The other thing we would do, and a company with Charlie also sometimes needs working capital so they can buy the equipment and so forth. So, and sometimes local their local bank may not be comfortable because they say, "Well, all of our sales are overseas." And they go, "Well, what if you don't get paid?" So we will provide a guarantee to the bank to make a working capital loan so they can buy the inventory and do that. Ninety percent of the Customers of the Exim Bank are small businesses. Um, <clears throat> so sometimes people think, oh, Exim is the bank of Boeing and bank of big companies. But let's remember that it's not 90% of the dollars, but it is 90% of the transactions are small companies. Yeah, but the, uh, <coughs> the, the buzzsaw that you ran into is that the Koch brothers and some others uh, of, of a libertarian bent yes. uh, viewed the ex Exim Bank as intruding on the market. In other words, greasing deals that uh, wouldn't otherwise happen. Uh, Ted Cruz called it uh, crony capitalism right. or whatever, and said he would do anything he could to stop it. I mean, there, and and your the the con, the continued operation of your of your uh, uh, of of the XM Bank was very much in doubt. Right, we had a tough reauthorization in 2012, and then we had a we actually lapsed our authority to make new loans in 2015 for over five months because they wouldn't uh, approve uh, members to your board, and you needed a well. Two things: we're one of the, XM Bank is one of the few agencies, the Export Import Bank, that is a sunset agency. So the ability to make loans and do work actually the authority sunset. It's very unusual in federal government. So the authority lapsed, and then shortly thereafter, the board, we lost our quorum because terms were up. And then nobody wanted to be renominated while we were a lapsed agency. And then by the time we got reauthorized in December 15, one of the terms only had a year to go. So that board member said, I'm out. And then, frankly, um, 
uh, Senator Shelby. From Alabama. Yeah. From Alabama, who chaired the banking committee, then refused to have a hearing. In fact, did not have a hearing on any nominee that went through banking for two years. But Fred, uh, I want to ask you how that limited what you could do, but but just respond to the substance of the criticism. Oh, sure. I mean, the criticism is that we were crony capitalism or corporate welfare. Mm-hmm. Our critics were really focused. Because um, some of the beneficiaries weren't small business, like Boeing was yeah, a course. big beneficiary of your <clears throat> yep. uh, of, of the Exim Bank. And we're here in Illinois. Boeing, Caterpillar, many companies of, of, of substance. The problem is Boeing is is competing against Airbus. So an easy example is we did a lot of work. French with company. French company. Well, it's actually French. It's backed by France, Germany, and Britain, mm-hmm. and to a little less of a small extent, Spain. So there are three export credit agencies that support Airbus. Uh, so when Airbus and Boeing are in a competitive bid to sell aircraft to Ethiopian Airways or El Al or Cathay Pacific – each side comes with financing as part of the package because if you're buying $500 million or a billion dollars worth of aircraft and you need 12-year financing, um, you've, you have to come with a financing package. That's been, it was really hard to do during the credit crisis and the, and the global financial crisis. It's eased up a little bit, but during that crisis, we had to provide financing for large transactions like that. Um, airplanes are hard to finance. They're big. They're expensive. Um, so I would say at XM we would do difficult products or going to difficult places. So Ethiopia was a combination of both. Mm-hmm. We did a lot of satellite financing. We compete with France as the only other country that really makes satellites. We compete with France, Russia, and China on satellite launches. They all back those country companies to the hilt. So we need to have a level playing field. And our critics, they would say, well, if other countries want to go down that path, that's their mistake. We should not do it too. But we're going to lose, the, we, we're going to lose sales and we're going to lose jobs by following that kind of strict well, What are the metrics on, uh, on that in terms of jobs? Well, we actually worked with the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Uh, part of the Labor Department, and actually calculated jobs by industry sector. They generally ran, and this is interesting about technology, when I got to the bank, there were over about 7,000 jobs for every billion dollars worth of sales. And by the time I left, there were just over six. So we've seen Because that. technology replaced some... People, so, I mean, and frankly, it's a so good thing. Another it, parable about the... It makes companies more productive, but it also... And it made us more competitive. If we didn't, we'd be less competitive. But it has put great pressure. I mean, President Obama worked to double exports in five years. And we made, in many countries we did. We've done it in every country. But we didn't have as many manufacturing jobs because there are more and more technology that's replaced a lot of manual labor in building things. Yeah, it's, it, which, is, which is something that we're going to have to adjust for uh, in the future. We, one of my big beefs is that we don't really have a national strategy for this revolutionary transition that's coming down the track here. Fast. The train is coming down the track, and a lot of people aren't going to be on board when it comes. Right. So uh, it's a concern. So what did you do while you were stymied by uh, the Congress? Well, um, you know, we're not allowed to lobby, so I obviously could not lobby. And I didn't, know, I didn't do press, but one— we 
we had a number of commitments we'd already been during that five month period, sort of the last half of twenty fifteen. We had if we had made a commitment to lend money on a, a particular project, but we hadn't actually executed all the documents, we closed out all those documents, sort of like you're going to contract on a house but you haven't closed yet. So we closed many things. We not surprisingly, had a record amount of Freedom of Information Act requests. They were more like double of previous years. So we deployed people there. We deployed people on Inspector General projects. We, so I kept everybody fully productive working because we had the budget, and I didn't want to lose people because we didn't know what – any day now we could have reopened. Now, this is still a debate. This is not going – President Trump – Oppose the ex Exim Bank. Bless you. Uh, oppose the Exim Bank uh, as a candidate, uh, and did kind of a one eighty on this. Did appoint people at bank, although there were controversies uh, connected to that as well. And the bank is going to come up for reauthorization again. I guess in nineteen in two thousand nineteen. Yeah. Well, just yesterday was the Senate confirmation hearings for the next chairman. And four other board members and the inspector general because there's there's no there's no permanent board and there's no inspector general at the bank. The the person he uh, appointed, uh, uh, Scott Garrett, former congressman from New Jersey, uh, was not a fan of the export import bank. Uh, I would say that would they were being very kind, David. He was <laughs> in, he was one of the arch opponents of the bank. Was part of the leadership that tried to close the bank not only once but twice. Um, and Senator Heitkamp said at the hearing, you know, Mr. Garrett, if you had your way in 2012, um, about half a million jobs would not have been supported and about two and a half billion dollars would have not gone to back to tax, not back, gone to taxpayers, which are the profits that Exxon made in that period of time. What do you have to say to that? He had no answer. So uh, if he's confirmed, what does that say about the future of the, of the Exxon Bank? Well, it's a concern. I mean, the, you know, we've seen this at EPA. We've seen this at other agencies. We have someone who's really opposed to the agency goes to run it. Uh, and in particular with a reauthorization, as you mentioned, David, which means the authority to make loans will lapse again in 2019. They need to get started, frankly, by no later than January on working that reauthorization. Certainly that's what we had to do. So I don't, I don't know if he'll be confirmed, but um, his job then will be, if, if, if he's going to do his job, which is to reauthorize the bank. Or wind it down. Oh, I mean, yes. I mean, obviously the Trump – I mean, the odd thing is President Trump wants more manufacturing jobs, believes we should be selling more things abroad. We should be reducing the trade deficit. The Exim Bank is, an, is the, one of the key tools to get that done. Yeah, although uh, from a demagogic standpoint, you could see the argument, well, we don't want to use our money to be helping people overseas. We want to use our money here. Well, of course, it, the money does go here because right. someone if buys Ethiopian the stuff. I understand, buy, I understand the counter. Right. But no, exactly. And that was part of the criticism of the bank. Why are we sending money overseas? We're going to take another uh, break, and we'll be right back with Fred Hochberg. Obviously related to, very much central to your mission, is the uh, notion of trade. Uh, trade, too, is a really controversial issue, and the president uh, 
rode that issue very hard in the election. He's withdrawn from the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, that the Obama administration uh, had negotiated over a period of years with with uh, more than a dozen uh, nations. Uh, what are the implications of the new policy of this administration? I, I have great concern. I think, you know, frankly, David, coupled with Brexit, the United Kingdom was also was very like-minded to the U.S. So in the EU arena, we had a very like-minded partner in the United Kingdom at the table. And frankly, it was often a thorn in the side because both the United States and the U.K. were more entrepreneurial, less state status, less state control of the economy. So we've lost that. And then on top of that, we have President Trump withdrawing from TPP. No one talks about TTIP, uh, the, the Climate Accord, uh, possibly Iran. Um, the U.S. has had huge – You know, people look to us for the answer or leadership in all those things. I will remember at, at when I would meet with my counterparts during the Iran issue, You know, we, we led the fight about making sure all the other export credit agencies didn't lend money to Iran. And we brought, I brought that up at every single meeting. Well, we keep withdrawing. We're not going to be doing that. And I think it's... Well, we won't have the leverage. We won't to. have the leverage to do it. Yeah. And we're going to have a world out there that's going to not look like the world we would like. The, the, uh, the president, as I said, made this a major issue in his campaign. And the power of it is, is pretty obvious. I mean, there, there's this general sense that, uh, particularly in some of the heartland of the country, that a lot of these manufacturing jobs did go overseas, many of them in the 90s. Today it's automation that's uh, taking many more jobs than trade. But, uh, you know, you, you travel around the country. You've seen uh, these communities and where manufacturing once was the bedrock of these communities. Uh, so you understand the power of this argument. And it's not just Republicans making it. Obviously, Bernie Sanders, right. uh, Elizabeth Warren, and others have, have made uh, these issues. I mean, what's the future of trade? Grim. I, I, uh, certainly under this administration, I do not see us having any, certainly no new trade agreement. And I think the prospects on NAFTA are very much up in the air. Presidents asked for renegotiation, and uh, the North American, and it doesn't seem to be going very well. It's not going very well, and it's got a very tight timetable, which is, doesn't always help. Um, and we could find ourselves withdrawing from NAFTA, but which would be very disruptive. As a matter of politics, if you polled on NAFTA, you would find it's probably unpopular. Uh, there was a sense that a lot of jobs were lost to Mexico and so on. Trade seems like one of one of the most difficult issues to have a, a debate about because there are such visceral feelings about it. The odd thing is, David, we are the second largest exporter in the entire world. We have been huge beneficiaries of trade. We have been huge number of jobs created in this country due to trade. Uh, and on the North America Free Trade Agreement, you know, American cars with American components and American cars are more competitive globally because of that. Um, could it be better? Of course. I mean, I was. Well, the other thing is that the benefits of it are not evenly shared. They're spread all over. I think one of the political problems is I don't think politicians of either party have really ever leveled with the American people to say they're going to be winners and losers. 
Some of you will be worse off. Some will be better off. And here's what we're going to do for those who are worse off. We've there, never really said that. Well, we've said it, but we haven't acted on we have, it. There, TPP, you know, there's trade, trade assist, uh, assistance, right? Trade adjustment assistance. Uh, that really hasn't. It hasn't answered the problem. That's right. Because I think we've been little. We haven't been as forthright to say they're going to be losers, and this is what we're going to do to help service those people so they can get back on their feet and have don't have a dislocation. You've uh, you mentioned you've had a long relationship with both Clintons. Uh, were you disappointed when Hillary Clinton changed her position on the TPP during the campaign? Was that a mistake? That's a great question. I remember watching when I heard that, and I was I w- I didn't think it was credible. I think uh, uh, my feeling when she changed. I mean, I understand the politics around that. When you think about it, we had forty-one Democrats between the House and the Senate supporting. Uh, the Trade Promotion Authority, you know, sort of the pro-trade bill. The entire Democratic caucus was opposed to it. So I understand the the box. And she was in the middle of a, prim- a potential primary then, uh, a- Senator Sanders, obviously, on the other side of that issue. So I think I the politics of that were razor sharp. I mean, um, and I don't know whether any, I don't know if she had said I was pro-trade, whether that might have, that could have sunk. Question is whether people believed her. Right. That's the. I mean, I think the one thing we, you and I have talked about, you know, authenticity is just so essential and key. And whether people therefore believe you. And if they don't believe you, then then you just you go down a rat's hole that they don't believe anything anymore. So, you know, I never will forget uh, Ann Lewis, Barney Frank's mm-hmm. sister said to me, you know, you're not going to agree with anybody 100% of the time. You don't agree with your spouse or your kids 100% of the time. So if politicians could find a way to talk that say, you're not going to agree with me on everything, but I'm going to do the best I can and be authentic about it, I think we have a different politics. Yeah. Well, that's certainly the way Barney survived all those years in the Congress. He seemed to revel in telling people exactly what he thought. Right. But nobody ever doubted that he was, that he was leveling with them, right. and he had a really successful career. Well, and people think President Trump is leveling. Yes. They feel he's very authentic. They don't yeah, nobody ever says, I wish he'd speak his mind. Right. Occasionally people say, I wish he wouldn't speak his mind, but they, they rarely it. say. Um, but, yeah, on the, on the Hillary piece, uh, she had been a very, very um, articulate and powerful proponent of the TPP and had made what they said 45 speeches on, on its behalf. So it wasn't a very credible switch on her part. It looked like what it was, which was a tactical maneuver. Right. And then when the speeches to the business community came out, she privately voiced uh, strong support right. for trade. There's a lesson in that for, for people. You, you, you know, you, you sort of have to be what you are and say what you believe and take the risk that People won't agree with you. Right. Um, on this subject, what about the Democratic Party itself? You, you, in addition to everything else, you're an activist within the party. Um, where is the party going on these economic issues? And what do you think the profile – when you're looking ahead, you've picked some winners in the past. When you're looking ahead to candidates for 2020 – what are you looking for in a candidate? What kind of candidate is going to be successful and overall, and what kind of candidate can get through a Democratic right. nominating process? Well, 
First, I think we're having we have a big divide in the Democratic Party, sort of being crass about it, sort of the Bernie wing, which is a little more purist and a maybe more centrist wing of the Democratic Party that's that's we're going to be teething through for quite some time. I, you know, I think we need a, you know, if I looked at 2020, um, it's probably has to be someone who's somewhat of an outsider. I think. Um, so not someone from Washington. I think it's really hard if you look at. President Obama, President Clinton, and Jimmy Carter were three had real credentials being outside the system. Every all of them. So uh, you know, the difficulty with that is that uh, there used to be a cadre of Democratic governors who were a wellspring of <coughs> candidates. Um, there are only fifteen now. Maybe uh, uh, there may be some more by the end of two thousand seventeen, beginning of two thousand eighteen, because of elections this year. But still. Um, you know, that's why you see mayors stepping up right. and uh, business people. And business people stepping, stepping up. Stepping up. But y- you feel like being too deeply enmeshed in the Washington scene is a is a disqualifier. It certainly, I think Democrats tend to have to be somewhat of an outsider, somewhat of a reformer. And I think, I think that's, I mean, I'm just thinking about the three I mentioned who, the last three Democrats who won the White House. Uh, and Al Gore was as inside as you can get. Hillary, although a woman, was perceived, I think, as certainly part of the political establishment. Kerry. And Kerry. Some of these names have uh, surfaced again. You know, uh, I think Vice President Biden is, is, is actively talking to people about running. He spoke yesterday at the Chicago Council. Sort of sound like someone running for president. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, Senator Sanders is... Uh, is 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 thinking about running again? Uh, do you are you concerned about the generational? I'm issue? hugely concerned. Listen, I I thought President Vice President Biden gave a great speech yesterday, as he often does, as he, yeah. downtown Chicago. But I just think I would like that generation to, to step aside and say, you know, we're going to step aside. We need the next generation to come up. We want to support them and do whatever, but we need to let so that whether that's Elizabeth Warren and Bernie and I'm not being controversial and Hillary and and um, Bernie mm-hmm. Sanders. I just think it's time. And in no other field would it be acceptable for people in the mid seventies. And David, you know firsthand this is a very demanding job. Yes, uh, intellectually, physically, and everything else. It's a killer. It's a killer. I sat next to the President of the United States for two years. My office was right next to his. And the unrelenting pressures of that job are like nothing you can imagine. And most people don't see uh, a lot of what a president has to contend with because they're either classified discussions or issues that are, uh, you know, in formulation. Well, look at the picture on your wall there. It's got not a gray hair in sight. Yeah. Um, I mean, eight years, but yeah, it Those takes gray hairs are every president leaves with gray hair. I don't know if this president will leave with gray hair. He may still. He may still have that golden locks. <laughs> but uh, but those are those gray hairs are 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 well earned. So are you be looking for some some someone else? Uh, yes. I mean, listen. I could I could also change my mind. And as I said, I was I was really impressed with Vice President Biden yeah, yesterday. But I just think. And think, if you took a poll today, my guess is that he and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren would right. probably be at the top of those right. polls. But I just think we we have to find a way to. You know, when both Bill Clinton ran and when Barack Obama ran, it was like there was a freshness. There was an outsider that was an idea of optimism and hope. 
And I think being a leader is about, a lot of it has to do with being optimistic and hopeful. And so I think that's, and it's got to be someone who really can connect with people, yeah. which those three people did. Yeah, yeah. And what, what about you? What's your, what's your next act? Well, I'm having a great time here at the ILP, so uh, unfortunately <laughs> it's going to be ending in two, it's ending almost in two weeks. Unfortunately for us, too, we've left So it's you. been great. I, I met with the Harrow School today. So I'm looking at what the next steps are. I haven't, I haven't charted a particular path. I'm following a couple of leads, but I'm not taking a rush. This has been a, a great opportunity, and the students here are so extraordinary. Uh, that's been they, a great They part. keep they talk about keeping you hopeful. They do keep you hopeful. And and uh when they ask you if you'll if you would consider public service again, would you? Oh, without question. Sure. I think it's one of the most rewarding. I was watching those hearings yesterday. I mean, it's still some of the most rewarding work partly because the leverage you have. You know, I'm very proud of 1.4 million jobs supported in my time at Exim Bank, $3.8 billion in profits. We reduced costs by like 30%. You know, those are, and I, I and importantly, at the people who work at Exim, when I left, more than half the management team were people who either were developed while I was there and moved up or we brought in. So that's, that's very gratifying. It's, it's hard to find that kind of gratification. Well, thanks for your service. And thanks for being here at the IOP. And it's always great talking to you. Fred Hotford. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. 